From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation in technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. It may come as a surprise to some that the market for buying and selling businesses has remained strong. Are you thinking about making a change in 2021? In this special episode of Beyond the Skyline, our experts will discuss considerations for selling or buying in the current economic climate. You'll learn what to look for and what to expect in the process, including legal considerations, valuation, financing options, how to handle the proceeds from a sale, and much more. Our wide-ranging conversation took place via Zoom on February 25th. Thank you for joining me this morning, and thank you to our panelists, too. Welcome to the State of Business Brokerage, a webinar we're going to talk about opportunities for buying and selling a business in 2021. I'm Joel Shatler. I'm the editor of Finance and Commerce, and I'll be your moderator today. Before we get to our panelists and dive into our discussion, just a few things about the format. We're going to hear from each of our panelists first to talk about their unique perspective on buying and selling a business. Um, They're going to talk about it from their area of expertise, talk about the market, talk about what you need to know um, for that. Um, After each presentation, then I'll have some follow-up questions for each of them, and we'll start uh, an organic conversation but this is interactive and I want to hear from you, the audience members, and we'll try to take as many of your questions as well. So just use the uh, Q&A function or the chat function and I'll be monitoring those and I'll be taking your questions. So that said, let's begin. Our panelists, I'll introduce quickly our panelists, but we'll be hearing from them one by one. But our panelists today are uh, Young Bebus, she's the president of VR Business Brokers. Don Kaiser is a managing principal at Hanover. John Thwing, the SBA guy at 21st Century Bank. Lisa Holter Ankle, an attorney at Avonson Legal. And Brian Larson, senior vice president and a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley. So thank you all once again, panelists, for. Uh, joining me today. And thank you again, attendees. And let's just dive right in. So first, we will hear from Young Bebus, president of VR Business Brokers, if you want to start and um, tell us a little bit about your perspective and what you do, and also about um, what you see as uh, opportunities for buying and selling a business. Sure. Thank you, Joel. Good morning, and thank you for the introduction, and uh, great to be here this morning. Um, hope you're all enjoying the uh, nice, warm sort of weather here in Minnesota. Um, 
as a business broker advisor and business certified appraiser by International Society of Business Appraisers. Uh, what we do is uh, here at BR is we work with the business owners providing a full range business brokerage services for privately held companies. And uh, this include 100% uh, transaction brokerage services to mergers and acquisitions, divesting activities, and to a formal business appraisal services. Um, and prior to opening a brokerage office, I was in a healthcare assist living operations as a regional director and COO. Um, and so many of the business practice within our office here at VR sort of carries through the discipline and quality services that we strive for. Um, and we become valued representatives for our clients and we provide valuable resources and uh, with uh, disciplined, uh, very active uh, responsiveness. Uh, I'll briefly touch on what we see in the marketplace from the brokerage standpoint. Um, this information probably hasn't been, have been circulated over the course of many years. We talk about baby boomers aging and retiring. So what we see from for seller perspective, we see a lot of baby boomers, business owners are retiring in record numbers. Um, with the baby boomers owning 2.34 million small businesses in the United States and employing more than 25 million people, um, they are retiring and they're thinking about retiring and planning to retiring. So more businesses to come onto the market, this means, because there are internal transactions and external transactions, and the many nowadays do choose to um, market to external uh, buyers for various reasons. For buyer perspectives, we work with a, a lot of um, corporate executives sort of coming out of the corporate and starting their own business, wanting to purchase existing um, uh, business through an acquisition activity, or some of them form a uh, private equity groups because they are have been in the space, they're experienced. So forming private um, equity groups, partnering with financing institution, uh, or corporate seeking consolidation for various reasons, private equity group with the strong committed funds that require portfolio platform or add-on, they're still very active in the marketplace. Um, as far as Quick trend information is, is that based on deal stats value index published in the quarter one of 2021, um, our median selling price over EBITDA, which we use a lot for the valuation for the company, uh, for Q1 was 4.3 average, Q2 was 3.7, Q3 was 4.7, went up significantly, Q4 is 4.4. So considering the pandemic we had, the valuation is still pretty historically strong. Uh, but although the, the information I just provided includes private market uh, of all sizes, all industry sectors, so please be aware these are different. Uh, but those are just the overall trend we see uh, in the marketplace. And uh, Don? Thank you. Good morning. My name is Don Kaiser. I'm the managing principal of Hanover Consulting. We provide business finance consulting services uh, primarily to small to middle-sized businesses. Uh, Young and I work together with partners on M&A transactions. So, for example, we're doing one transaction now, a local company uh, that is in about the $8, 9000000 million range uh, that we are uh, helping sell. And it's uh, the, the likely buyer now we're in, for negotiations is a Western, a Western state uh, private equity group, which is using a combination of bank debt and a committed equity capital. Um, from my perspective, the current economic situation in the U.S., partly due to the pandemic, 
has created a number of opportunities for both sellers and buyers. Some firms are proving the viability of their business model and by continuing to grow, uh, to maintain viability, to, uh, to adapt and to meet their customer needs. Uh, but other firms are struggling uh, to, ch- to adapt to the changing economic situations and are choosing in many cases simply to sell. It's a very difficult time for a lot of businesses and they're not surviving uh, comfortably. Um, other firms are choosing to sell, as Young pointed out, for the traditional reasons of uh, age retirement and, and health issues. Um, so what we're seeing is a tremendous number of opportunities for buyers who want to grow by adding on other companies and sellers who need to exit. Uh, so we're seeing a significant increase this year and last year in the company sales and purchases. And on top of that, there's a great deal of capital available to assist with these acquisitions, both debt and equity. Um, as business brokers, we can assist our clients in analyzing their needs for selling or for buying, structuring the transaction, doing evaluation, then entering the market in the most efficient uh, in the most efficient manner possible, both in terms of cost and in terms of time. Thank you. All right. Thank you both for that. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of follow-up questions for each of you too. So I appreciate that summary. Um, now, John Twing, do you want to give your presentation? You bet. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Um, Don, great segue. Thanks for talking about capital. Um, my nickname is the SBA guy. It's what I do. It's who I am. It's my <laughs> license plate. Um, the, the thing I like folks to know is um, there's lots of forms of capital out there. Um, banks and SBA lenders like myself perform, provide one of the forms of capital, primarily debt. Um, there is certainly equity in the market, um, but debt is one of the funding mechanisms that folks like to use. And as Young mentioned, um, for me as well, I see a lot of what I refer to as corporate refugees, folks who've had good successful careers, they've built net worth and liquidity. Um, they're kind of tired of working for a large organization and would like to strike out on their own. And right behind the baby boomers, and honestly, even some baby boomers like me that still want to be owners, um, the age of folks I've seen in the market, I, I've got folks in their 60s still buying businesses. Right. So to me, it's really key that right. um, um, the uh, for a lot of folks, it's just in their blood they want to own. So part of what I see in the marketplace is it's a very active and healthy market. A lot of people are curious today, how has the pandemic impacted the market and lenders' appetites? Um, we're in, still in a very healthy lending environment. Um, and honestly, we're still in a seller, um, seller angled or leaning environment. Um, with most of my clients, they have to chase businesses for a while. They have to make offers quickly and they have to make strong offers on attractive businesses because there are more qualified buyers than there are good sellers. Um, I want folks to know that financing for a business acquisition to fund a going concern is a specialized little area. Um, and not every lender is really well associated with that or ha- has a lot of experience. So um, as you're talking with lenders, make sure you have someone that understands this and they've done um, going concern financing, they understand how to finance goodwill and they understand all the choices available. Um, choice is important. And the reality is some buyers have more choices than others, but regardless of how many choices you have, you should understand all of them and have someone who can help you pick the best path. Um, One of the things I like to say is fundamentals first, funding tool second. So your lender should also be familiar with how how to analyze cash flow, what kind of valuation metrics are normal in the market and in the finance world, um, and really look at the fundamentals of the transaction first, know if there's viability and 
is it an attractive opportunity for the buyer? Then talk about the funding mechanism that best fits the person in the situation. Um, some of the tools that we use are the SBA 7A program. We also use the SBA 504 program when there's real estate involved. And for some borrowers, bank financing is available as well. And then there are, other, there are folks who have additional alternatives personally where they're gonna fund or leverage some of their personal assets. They may have significant equity in their home. They may have liquid investments that they can leverage. Um, those are funding options for folks as well. Um, my advice is in this historically low rate environment, find a lender that you like. If you're interested in owning, be active in the market, look at transactions, get to know your lender um, and, and be out there and be looking. A um, couple things to know in terms of the kind of what I call hot topics. Um, there are SBA incentives in the market. So if SBA ends up being your funding tool, typically transactions of around 5 million and less, um, there are incentives in the market today related to the stimulus package for SBA transactions closed and funded prior to September 30th. So that's certainly increasing urgency. Um, and the, um, you know, this low rate environment, um, we, we actually think it'll stick around for a while, but there is there has been a little movement lately. Um, so uh, a lot of folks are moving with urgency today. So um, if you're interested in looking, we're here to help you look. Thank you so much for that, John. Appreciate it. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of follow-up questions too around lending and, and such too. Um, so a reminder too, to get your questions out there too, and we'll look for those. Um, so thank you. So Lisa, perhaps you can uh, talk about this market, talk about buying and selling companies from your perspective. Thank you. I'm having trouble hearing you just for a second. Your microphone is not working properly. I think we're having just a little trouble. You want to try and start again? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, try it one more time. Can we hear you, Lisa? We'll log back in again. Okay, we'll catch up to you, Lisa. We want definitely want to hear yeah. from you. That happens. Don't log worry. back in again. You can log back in again. So as you're doing that, we'll go. We'll move on to Brian. Um, Brian Larson, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, from your perspective of money, uh, talk a little bit about this market and uh, from what you see. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, Joel. And uh, good morning, everyone. Um, unfortunately to hear Lisa, I'm, I'm also excited to hear what she has to say. Um, <laughs> as Joel said, my name is Brian Larson. Uh, I founded the Fernhill Group at Morgan Stanley, a four-person professional uh, team that manages $300 million for a select group of business owners and their families. Uh, I have over 30 years of experience in uh, investments and wealth management. Uh, I have the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. Uh, the CFA designation is considered one of the most challenging designations in finance to accomplish. And lastly, our team has the resources of Morgan Stanley behind us, uh, one of the best wealth management firms uh, in the United States. 
So uh, I guess I'm here to really talk about a liquidation event. Uh, you are maybe a ser serial entrepreneur, or you might be selling your life's work, and you are working closely with Don or Young uh, to market your, your, your business. Early on in that process, I want to meet you uh, because some of the things on your personal life are going to be uh, hand in glove with what you're doing um, with Young and Don. Um, specifically in the wealth management process, uh, we talk about financial planning. And this is going to be something early on in the process of selling your business that you're going to want to be a part of. Um, what is financial planning? Well, you have the quantitative part of your life, your assets, your liabilities, uh, your investments, your risk tolerance. And we need to marry those with your goals, the qualitative things. I'd like to have a condo with an amazing pool in Bonita Springs, Florida. I want to have a house on a golf course in Scottsdale. I want to make sure my grandchildren graduate from college without debt. Um, so a financial plan marries those, those very quantitative items of your life with the qualitative parts of your life. And you need a talented team, I think, to pull out some of those goals that you haven't really thought of because you've been running your business for 20 years, right? So, so financial planning is a big part of this process and it starts early because uh, Don or Young are going to say something to the effect of, hey, we're selling your business for $10 million, but after taxes and fees, you're only going to get $7 million. And by the way, they might be telling you that early on, but until we sit down with a financial plan and, and lay that out, you're like, oh, I'm only going to get $7 million bucks when we're all done with this. So that's a big part of it. But there's other parts of the wealth management process that are really integral as well that you want to start bringing up early. Things like risk management. Do you have enough life insurance to back your overall uh, balance sheet? Um, retirement planning. Um, uh, often the affluent business owners forget that a claiming strategy on for social security can actually really optimize your retirement. Um, tax planning. We work really closely with your tax advisor to make sure we're doing everything we can to minimize your tax situation and take advantage of things. Um, investment management. Most people, when they think of, of, of Brian Larson and our team, um, realistically, we think about, uh, about investment management. And that is absolutely a, a part of what we do, but there's so much a part, a, a outside of that with wealth management. Um, liability management. Uh, we I think so much about the asset side of our, of our lives, but that leverage that liability side uh, is also equally important. Legacy planning. Um, you just sold your business or in the process of selling your business. Um, what, perhaps a very, you know, it's going to be a big part of your life. Um, how do you get the wealth that you created to the next generation with the, with the, in the most efficient manner? Um, Philanthropic guidance. Boy, this is one it's, it's so uh, integral, especially if you're in the middle of a liquidation event. Um, and you, if, you are, if you are charitable already, um, then we can probably, no, no problem. we can marry a lot of what you want to do uh, with this liquidation event. And then lastly, trust services. Uh, all these moving parts, and some of them you're going to want to uh, uh, give to a trust department, the liability, the management, the um, the, the responsibility uh, to a trust department. So wealth management is a wide variety of things. Um, uh, lastly, I want to talk about fiduciary uh, duty. Um, when you're one, working with somebody uh, in wealth management, fiduciary duty 
uh, is the highest standard of care. It means that this individual has your best interest at heart before themselves or their company. And I would guide you to always uh, take a look at making sure that you're working with a fiduciary in that standpoint. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can get you uh, you can find my details at thefernhillgroup.com. Uh, thank you, Joel. I'll turn it back over to you, sir. All right. Thank you so much for that, Brian. Appreciate it. Um, we've got Lisa back. Um, so let's hear next from Lisa. Let's give us your perspective. Thank you. All right. Now, Great. how is my audio? Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, good morning. Thanks uh, uh, for being here. Glad I could finally uh, join in. Um, I, uh, I'm an attorney uh, at Advise and Legal, and I've practiced for more than 25 years. Um, my partners and I at Advise and many like me have more than 20 years practicing at big law firms. And I decided a couple years ago um, that I'd like to do things a little differently um, and be a little more entrepreneurial. And so um, uh, I have 10 colleagues and uh, we own our firm and make all our decisions a lot like our clients um, and find that our clients enjoy this working with us directly, a senior attorney, you know, years of sophisticated legal work under our belts. Um, as a business attorney, I work primarily with private companies, closely held businesses, family owned, um, uh, also some that are owned by private equity groups. Um, but I work with companies through the life cycle of their business. So if you think about key events in the life of a business, that's where I tend to get involved in forming the business, um, uh, key contracts, uh, vendor relationships, sales of products, bringing employees on. Um, and then uh, growing your business through acquisition or selling your business uh, as well. Those are the uh, key events. So over the years, I've represented many uh, owners and founders of businesses when they sell. I help my clients uh, in a couple ways in uh, acquisition area in particular. I'd say three key things. One, I get involved early on to help talk about the structure from a tax perspective to do it most effectively, stock versus asset. Um, uh, kind of uh, analysis, um, and I we do that early on because it impacts uh, the purchase price and the net uh, proceeds to the seller. Uh, I also help my clients in the due diligence process. I have lots of uh, easy organizational tips to help organize due diligence like online data rooms, but more than that, um, uh, I think from a seller's perspective, we want due diligence to be presented in a way that shows the business in the best light. And from a buyer's perspective, you're looking for unknown liabilities um, and you're, you're sort of discovering things and digging. Um, and I've done it hundreds of times, so I really know what to look for. And um, finally, I document the deal, as most people would expect. Um, but more than that, I, I help my clients get the best deal terms because I've done it so many times, I really know where to push back or ask for more, so to speak. Um, so there are a couple of things I wanted to share about um, deals now and, and what's going on um, and some highlights about the legal process. Uh, there are a couple points where you want to engage an attorney early on uh, for tasks that will take a handful of hours, cost very little, but potentially save you thousands of dollars. Um, have an attorney 
review your engagement letter with your broker or investment banker. For example, many are going to contain a tail provision. Um, sorry, Don and, and Young. Um, but you're going to want to understand what that is um, because there could be liability that ends after the engagement ends, and you'll want that time period to be as short as possible. You'll also want an attorney to review a letter of intent. Key issues will be the structure of the deal, like I mentioned, um, tax uh, from a tax perspective, stock sale versus asset sale. But there can be other things as well. I just looked at an LOI for a client, um, small deal, so he really didn't think it was going to be you know, much to deal with, but the LOI was binding on the seller and had a very long lockup period. But for the buyer, there were due diligence and financing outs. So having the document be binding uh, on one party, but not the other, really impacts the negotiating leverage once the deal moves on. Um, so those are areas where I'd say get your uh, lawyer involved uh, early. Um, it's really important, I think, for clients to understand the difference between stock and asset deals. And I can't go into that in huge detail here. Um, but basically, a stock sale is where you the owner of the business is selling the stock of the business. The business stays the same. The ownership changes versus an asset deal where the business is selling its assets. The, the company remains in place after the sale, but without operating assets. The buyer owns those assets. So the business is changing. It's now run by a new entity. That can be more um, disruptive for customers, employees, vendors, things like that. Um, but generally, a buyer prefers an asset deal because uh, the buyer will get a step up in basis on um, the tax value and obtain tax deductions for depreciation and amortization versus the tension with the seller preferring typically a stock deal with one level of tax at capital gains rates. Um, so it's important to deal with those things early on um, in your LOI. Um, uh, some things that I'm seeing now in, in deals, a lot of uh, discussion about um, PPP loans has come up, and I've really seen the gamut uh, of how that's been dealt with, um, that many uh, businesses, um, the buyers will not close the deal until the PPP loan has been forgiven. Um, in the middle is, is an approach where uh, there's some security or collateral, perhaps the full amount of the PPP loan is put in escrow until it's repaid, but then, or forgiven, and then the escrow would be released to the sellers. Uh, in other cases, um, the buyer has been willing to assume the, uh, the loan and the risk with some indemnification um, for it, but close even with it outstanding and without dollars being held uh, in escrow. Um, so you'll see, I've, I've seen quite a range of that. Um, some other things to think about, um, I think, uh, in general, uh, it's a seller's market. I've heard that from a number of people, uh, and I think Don and Young will speak a little bit more to that even. Um, but deals might be taking a bit longer um, because of this change in uh, the operations of the business during the last year and buyers wanting to really understand how any changes, you know, up or down in profitability uh, are 
going to impact the company long term. Um, so uh, as well, um, because of COVID and issues relating to, um, you know, distancing, travel, things like that, um, I'm seeing fewer on-site issue uh, meetings taking longer, um, taking longer to schedule those meetings, um, things like that that have lengthened the deal process a little bit. Um, one other thing I want to add uh, in closing is. Um, this goes regardless, but I think it's, it's really important for sellers to have realistic expectations about how time consuming the due diligence process is. Uh, responding to due diligence requests and pulling all that information together takes up a significant amount of time. This is evenings and weekends. Uh, don't plan vacation. Um, you have to, uh, you have to be uh, able to do this and run your business because it's going to be critical to hit your budgeted earning levels during this time frame. Otherwise, you could have a buyer uh, seeking to reduce the purchase price. Um, it's typically more than one person can do, so you should get your, your deal team together early on, both external and internal, but look at the key functions of the business, what's critical, and key people who can handle that and be discreet and consider even uh, retention bonuses for these employees um, in order to have a successful close to keep them through the closing time frame. Um, so those are my thoughts uh, as we start out here. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much for that, Lisa. That was a good description. Um, there are follow-up questions for each of you individually. Um, a reminder to keep your questions coming too. I'll watch for those. Uh, thank you for those who've already submitted some questions. So great. Let's just start with the, our conversation generally with that big picture view and building on some things that Lisa said and also Young and Don and, and even John, but just talking about that market right now in general. Um, you're describing it as a seller's market. Um, what is the market like for today from both a buyer and a seller's per perspective with the economy the way it is to also just looking a little bit more in detail on the demographics? Who is the buyer out there? Who is selling? Um, does anybody want to start specifically? On Yes, Don. I'm happy to start off there. Part of, the, uh, part of what's driving the market is the demographics. Uh, the baby boom is now reaching its 60s and 70s. Uh, they've had a long run. They've had a successful run. And now they're saying, you know, it, it's time to, to hang up the spurs. I mean, the guy that we're dealing with now, Young and I, is in his early 70s. He's had a wonderful career, made a lot of money, but it's time to retire and play golf in Arizona. Uh, so that's part of what's driving it. Another part is the pandemic. It has really stressed a lot of businesses. Um, as, as example, if you look at the restaurant industry, the hotel industry. Uh, and the retail industry, they're being hammered by the recession, by the, by the pandemic. And they're just saying, it's, it's time to get out. We, we're having too much trouble. So that's part of what's driving the seller's market. In the buyer's market, A, there's a lot of capital out there. B, there's a lot of people who want to own their own business. They're retired execs or they're execs who got laid off or they got bored working for corporate America. And they want to own their own business. It's a challenge to that. Uh, that's, that's part of the dynamics from my perspective, and I'm sure Young can add a lot to that. Right. So when we look at the business owners, um, it could involve the uh, different circumstances in life uh, that could involve retirement, as we talk quite a bit about it right now um, with the baby boomers retiring. Um, but 
the same question uh, comes up, whether they're reaching retirement or not. My business is doing great. Why do I sell? Or my business is struggling. Um, I need to sell. Um, for the question of my business is doing great, I'm making a lot of cash flow than I have ever before. So if I sell, there's, there might be some tax liabilities, capital gains tax, what do I do with those? And the, really, I have people running the business for me, why should I sell? But the owner, uh, a lot of times, um, kind of answer to themselves where um, the conclusion that they arrive is, um, I, I could have a good succession plan internally within company who can run my business. However, what happens if something happens to me tomorrow? I owe this to my family to have uh, exit plan in place so that I can choose the right path to transition for my family, whether they're in the business with me or not, unless there's internal buyer to it. So I owe this to my family to have a plan in place. So I'm going to go and do transaction now where my business is doing well. Or I have had business owners who decide to sell because they're so tired from running business. They need some vacation. <laughs> so it depends on how their business and uh, organizational structure is made up. Their decision-making process becomes quite different. Um, some might be a little bit shorter time parameter and say, I want to sell fairly quickly, or I have a plan in place. I'm going to take about two to three years and really kind of look at what my value is today and then um, uh, plan, plan uh, in advance two to three years to make sure that I hit my uh, a business benchmarks to make sure that my business is attractive. Because it could be a same business with the same EBITDA, but business attractiveness could be different based on revenue mix, customer mix, contracts in place, and all those different variables that comes with the business. Um, and I have other business owners who have a uh, handsome young growth, uh, uh, growing path where they will say, I kind of want to see what it looks like in my sector. Uh, what are buyers looking for? Because I want to grow my business attractively and I got all these great ideas, but I need to narrow it down, have a strategy. So that's more of a corporate strategy where they're talking about, okay, let's talk about, you know, who are looking for, what are they looking for, what's important. Granted, business is not always formed to really sell. Obviously, it needs to grow. And there are various different reasons, but it's good to have as part of the business plan, what are the exit plans? And those are important um, uh, perspectives to have for the owners uh, to be able to grow business in the ways that that really brings a maximum value at the time of exit. Because, you know, we, uh, but the wise man said, nothing lasts forever. Uh, <laughs> what business in itself is too, the people in itself is too the same. So we need to plan ahead. That's a part of a lot of uh, business owners are doing that. And as far as buyer wise, I think it was very well said by Don. There are a lot of people uh, coming out of corporate or corporate uh, executives and uh, a lot of consolidation going on right now. Uh, lots and lots of consolidation. Now, granted, I don't want people to mistake and say, because this is seller's market, we can sell it for whatever price. Like Lisa said, right expectation and managing the expectations uh, is an important part of the transaction too. If I say uh, my sector goes for a EBITDA of about two, uh, two times, uh, 3.5 times of multipliers, where um, if I say, well, I really need to get five times multipliers for me to be able to successfully retire because of, you know, current financing that I carry 
and or my exit plan for healthcare retirement or whatever have you. Um, it's the two different things where there's an expectation and what I want to get versus what the market is going for. So it's important to know what the differences are so that you can plan again the corporate market corporate strategy as well as or kind of timing that exit strategy really isn't important. I have a client, we have a client we work with for uh, say they send us some information and say, take a look at them. How does it look this year? Um, so those are good strategies to be working with advisors. Now, um, yes. I, I did say it's a seller's market. And um, one characterization of it that I've heard again and again right now is that there's sort of companies fall into three buckets. Those companies that um, experienced a downturn and a dip uh, through uh, the summer um, and maybe again uh, towards the end of the year with closures, um, but came back after things reopened in the summer and, um, uh, and, and came back at a fairly good run rate and are, are stable. Um, another group that were just devastated, some just have closed and they're gone, um, but they've been profoundly impacted and they have not recovered at all. Uh, and then finally, there um, are some companies that have done very well because of COVID. Um, and, and so if your business is one that has not been, uh, that has been extremely impacted and is not doing well, it is not the time to sell unless you, uh, there are sellers who just want to get out, um, but you're going to really feel the impact of it in the valuation that, that you're, uh, that you'll get despite the fact that it's a seller's market. For the other businesses, it's a great time to sell. And um, there are, uh, you know, some buyers who have, have gotten through this and their company's stable and think it's a great time to get out. Um, unlike the recession in 2008, 2009, I've heard uh, capital is still very strong. Um, and uh, John can speak to this, but lending is still very strong. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, I think, you know, buyers have cash. There's a lot of money on the sidelines and that's what's keeping uh, valuations up and valuations strong. Um, although I have heard that for those companies that have done really well, buyers are not sure how to price them. And um, the deals that we're seeing get done quickly are ones where uh, the companies know that it was a blip and they're not trying to incorporate uh, the increase in revenues during, um, you know, second, uh, third, fourth quarters in their uh, run rate multiples um, fully. Um, but if you think it's going to continue, um, you might have a harder time getting the buyer um, to uh, agree to that because the buyer won't have had a history and, and everyone is still uncertain about, you know, what is our new normal. Thank you for that. Um, John, I wonder if you have some comments on the market as it is now. You, you did comment it on your opening remarks, but I wondered if uh, in our conversation, if you had anything extra to add. You bet. Okay. Um, and so, and I want to touch on a topic we haven't really talked about yet. And uh, so you'll notice that with deal professionals, like a lot of us, we spend a lot, a lot of time talking about numbers. I want to talk a little bit about feelings. <laughs> so let's all talk about our feelings. Um, <laughs> So what I'm getting at there is on the buy side, of course, I'm mostly aligned with buyers and their experience, both financially and emotionally. Um, sellers are having a different set of emotions, but on the buy side, people tend to focus on financial preparation. And somebody like me can help you do that on the buy side 
help you make sure that personally you're prepared, um, help you think through things, and Lisa can help assist with this. What's the proper ownership structure? Will your spouse be included? But most of my buyers are people rather than entities. They are going to form an entity. Most of my clients are either individuals or a group of investors, a relatively small group, three, four, or five people. Um, and almost all of them are going to be providing a personal guarantee. That's when the bank puts its cold, clammy hands on you, kind of like at the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. So it's an emotional issue that people need to understand. And I would say for buyers, um, a key part of this is being emotionally prepared. The corporate refugees who move from a W-2 career where the risk is losing their job and their earning stream, um, once you own a small business, and particularly one where you've personally guaranteed debt, it's a significantly different risk profile. Now, the good news is it's also a very different opportunity profile, um, but your lender should always talk with you about both how does the debt facilitate the opportunity, but what are the obligations associated with it? And most buyers go through what I call an, uh, an anxiety. <laughs> so as they get into the process, they're excited and they're mostly, you know, uh, really thinking about the, the future um, and being a small business owner. As it becomes more real and they get closer to signing those papers that say, you now have a load of debt and some personal obligations associated with it, that anxiety arc increases over time. Um, and making sure as a buyer that you are emotionally prepared as well as financially prepared is really key. Um, there are a lot of good buyers in the market. There are a lot of financially qualified buyers in the market. There is a subset that will never buy. Um, and it's okay if you look. The one thing I do advise is avoid getting deep into a transaction and pulling out. That can be very painful to all parties. Um, so but part of the process on the buy side is very important to think about emotionally, how will this change? What are the obligations that you and your family may deal with? Um, and are you willing to take on those obligations related to the opportunity that you wanna pursue? Um, so the um, numbers are important, but the fit between the business and the buyer and the fit of just the risk profile of being a small business owner to me is really key. If I could add to that, Joel, just for a second, yep. uh, to go on, on John's comment, it's really a culture issue. If you look at the history of deals that fail after, after closing, it's almost always, or at least in many parts, a question of a failed cultural match. Uh, they just did not fit well together. It may have looked like a good acquisition or a good merger on paper in the numbers, but they didn't fit. I mean, the classic example is when Daimler-Benz acquired Chrysler, uh, which made a lot of sense on paper, but was an absolute disaster and cost Daimler-Benz billions of dollars. The cultures did not at all mesh. So when I talk to a seller or a buyer and they're talking with the counterpart, they look at how you fit together. Is there a good cultural match here in terms of style, uh, of, of employee uh, morale, of staff uh, decision-making, do they fit well together? That's a really important part of it. That's a good point. Right. So as part of the, um, you know, from our perspective, when we work with the sellers and buyers, we do um, meetings, uh, buyer-seller meetings, and uh, really it's important to have the synergy and um, some sort of connection there too. Um, with differently from buying a, say, real estate property for an investment, buying a business is that you get involved in the uh, culture that was built by the current owner as a buyer. And from seller perspective, buyer is buying the culture and 
there are asset components. We're talking about the tangible and intangible. There's tangible of the furniture, friction equipment, and there's inventory, and there's uh, all sorts of things that come with the business. Uh, intangible, which is customers, uh, employees, um, infrastructure they built, maybe intellectual properties. It could be the uh, some sort of trademarks or the, the way that they perform the business, whether it's on the platform of e-commerce or uh, storefront, there are so many, so many different dynamics that come with it, but it's important that buyer and seller actually has the good synergy as they work through. Because at the end of the day, when going through a transition after the, po- so post-closing activities, there's gonna be so much of, there's gonna be a lot of interactions as well. And some business owners, depends on the size of transaction and then how its deals are structured, some business owners, sellers stay with the buyer to help them grow um, as part of either equity owner or consultants or the employees. So that based on how it's all done and put together, um, the length of the relationship goes even longer. So that's, I, I agree with the John to his comment, um, a, you know, emotional components is important uh, and also be prepared. It's kind of like a jumping off the cliff and hope to land in the other side of the uh, <laughs> cliff. <laughs> uh, but, but be sure to have that component ready, I think is very, very important. We see the same thing. And we ask the same questions to, are you ready? <laughs> are you Tell really me, ready? It's, a, it's a leap of faith. Leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it is. It sure yeah. is. It sure is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I personally have gone through that process myself too. And uh, it's, uh, uh, it's rewarding. And there are other perks and it's hard work. Uh, but at the same time, it's a decision an individual has to make. Lisa, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no. Um, but picking up on your comment about uh, business owners, uh, sellers staying on, I see we have a question about that and how that might, uh, if a seller stays on for a period of time, how might that impact the sale and does it impact taxes, things like that. Um, it is not uncommon, particularly with financial buyers, private equity funds, investors who don't have the experience to have, uh, who don't have the hands-on experience with that particular business to have the owner stay on for a while. Um, but other cases too, when, um, so I see it across the board. Um, in small companies, uh, it's, it's typically um, weeks to months. Um, it, if a private equity company is the buyer and you own and want to keep some money on the table, uh, they might want to keep you around for a, a significant period of time. Obviously, you'd have to be open to that. Um, it, it, it doesn't prohibit uh, uh, a sale. It's not a requirement. I think buyers will work around it if you don't want to stay. Um, and in terms of taxes, um, uh, it, it can have an impact if you're allocating a portion of the purchase price to a non-compete um, or to a consulting arrangement. Um, but working with uh, an accountant and lawyer ahead of time, I think you're really going to be able to manage it in a way um, that uh, makes sense from a tax perspective. Um, so it it isn't an impediment and it isn't going to hurt you um, if you want to do that. I think coming to an understanding with the buyer uh, early on about what they want and what your role would be and how you'd be compensated for that are really the key issues to think about versus the tax impact. Staying on topic um, with about what the market is like too. We have a question here on whether that might change and that's um, 
with a lot of boomers retiring and many of them selling soon, do you see a shift to a buyer's market with an increase in inventory in the coming years? Um, asking you to get out your crystal balls a little bit here, but do you see that shifting at all? And I'll throw that to whoever wants to answer too. <laughs> I can pick up on that a little bit. Um, you know, it's kind of like a almost our economy, economic, microeconomic uh, cycle. So uh, let's kind of compare it to the maybe um, housing market. Um, in the housing market, there's a seller's market and buyer's market. When does it become buyer's market versus seller's market based on the supply and demand? So um, the to answer, um, there is no crystal ball, but if we think logically and using a sort of common sense, uh, for the years to come depends on what the uh, supplies, uh, how that looks. There might be a higher competition, but at the same time, based on financing world, John, maybe you can add this too, is if interest rate goes up, how does it impact the buyer's behaviors too? Um, also, valuation. Uh, much likely, the valuation of uh, business is going to make a, at sometimes hindrances or decisions to go forward. So, uh, for instance, back in the 2018 to, uh, 2008 to 2011, after post-2011, the valuation was, during that time, was very low. Um, so that makes a difference. Overall market uh, decision-making activities is more of a macro, I think, a trend is going to end up being. Um, and usually, I mean, if we see historically, there's a macroeconomic change cycle, sort of somewhere between 10 to 12 years. Um, and maybe uh, Don is a... Uh, um, as a professor kind of teaching the economy and financial side, you can address it a little bit more too. But, you know, changes to come to a certain degree, we just don't know what the degree of the difference is going to be. Uh, if we look at 2011 recovery from the, um, you know, the um, tough time and the recession we had back then, we're kind of hitting that marks of the uh, uh, 10 to 12 years right now too. So, I, I, again, I don't have, a, um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. The other thing that's going to impact too is capital gains tax. Um, I've had quite a few people talking about postulated tax that's coming in with the new um, administration and how will that impact depends on size of the business again. If it's, you know, small business owners might not as much for the, uh, say, a mid-market business, low, low mid-market or mid-market in the private market sector, at least, that might make a big difference to them. Because even right now, we're talking about capital gains tax, depends on how the purchase price allocation is done, um, you know, depends on what that looks like, it might vary. But say, if, you know, capital gains tax rate is 20, 20%, and then you add the state tax to that, and then you add the um, surcharge to that, and becomes like what right now 30% it's going to go up next year for the I think the owners with um, a million plus so you know that's true it's going to be almost 40 to 50% based on what the state tax is going to be so these are things to consider and keep in mind um, as far as you know what's going to be the trend and I think there are so many external factors so we say the business value a lot of times think about it this way there is earnings, it's earning divided by risks. There's internal risks you can manage, there's external risks you can't manage, or I mean, you can't control. So those are, the, those are really important factors to keep in mind as business owners, because I can say, you know what, I, my business is going well, I'm gonna stay, stick around, but could the valuation change? Absolutely, yes. Because historically it's shown that numbers kind of fluctuate just like along with the macroeconomy. Go ahead, I'm sorry, John. 
Oh, sorry. Right. I was just going to say I've, I've I've got a couple thoughts on the topic from kind of from the buy side. Uh, a couple things to think about. Um, we do have historically low rates in both economically and demographically. I would anticipate that those will continue for um, the foreseeable future. So that, of course, drives um, in, uh, in incentive to invest because in investing in capital is cheaper. Um, the other thing that's going on in the background is lots and lots of stimulus. Um, so the stimulus is absolutely going to affect the economy. Now it creates other risks, of course, um, but stimulus has stimulated. So, um, and again, I think the stimulus will have quite a long tail and keep the markets elevated. Um, the, other, the other issue I wanna talk about is quality. Um, as, as most of us here know, there are a lot of businesses for sale that may not be of wonderful quality. And most of my buyers want to find quality. Um, there is certainly a movement to quality in the market. The, um, the pandemic and, it, and its impact on companies will, will accentuate that. Um, so to me, a big part of the driver is the number of qualified buyers has stayed high. The number of quality sellers is going down. It was, it was already not enough to meet demand pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, there are even fewer quality listings. So the number of qualified buyers chasing those high quality listings that have persevered and survived well through the pandemic, um, from my point of view says, we're gonna have a pretty strong seller's market into the foreseeable future, um, unless there's somewhat of a prolonged recession um, post pandemic. But at this point, we're just not seeing that. There's another demographic question, so I'll throw it in right now, too. Do you see Gen Z wanting to acquire businesses, too? Um, they're starting their own businesses at record rates, but are they buying? And how do they get qualified to buy if they're not buying? Do you have any follow-up on that for, for the younger generation? Um, and, and uh, the yeah. older ones in the room, I'll answer that. <laughs> so far, I'm, I'm Gen, Gen A or B or something. I don't know what level, <laughs> what level I'm at. Um, what I'm seeing from the Gen Zs, though, is that they're starting software businesses, uh, which require very, very little capital to raise. I mean, basically, it's a, two computers and a programmer, um, and, and they can raise almost, uh, it requires very little money to raise to start a Gen Z business. They're not buying the capital-intensive businesses like manufacturing uh, or retail, because they aren't thinking in terms of retail. So I don't see a lot of Gen Zs buying businesses. I see them starting businesses. I do a lot of mentoring at the U of M and I talk with these Gen Z entrepreneurs and they're wonderful. They're, they're challenging to work with, but they don't want to buy something. They want to start something. That's a good point. And, and Joel, I, I've had, a, I, I certainly, uh, I do want folks to know that um, the, you know, bankers are known for saying no. Um, <laughs> the, if you are a young entrepreneur and you want to be a business owner, there are two primary ways to do it. Start one of your own or buy somebody else's. Um, and to me, buying somebody else's actually does make a lot of sense. You already have a customer base. You already have um, ho hopefully employees. You may have a product or, or a set of products. Um, and the one thing that many young people have that <clears throat> older folks don't is they can live very cheaply because they don't necessarily have dependents. They don't have other expenses that, that tend to come with age and other obligations and children and um, college, et cetera. So um, the one of the things a lender like myself looks for is what is the household cost and what is the burden on the new business? Um, when a broker analyzes a business for sale, 
they're generally looking at EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA or seller's discretionary earnings. Mm -hmm. From that, somebody like me has to take out some appropriate pay for the owner plus cash flow to service debt and to support value. Some buyers can live on very little, which leaves, which puts a little burden on the business. Some buyers need significantly more to serve their lifestyle. Um, so I will say that's the real advantage that younger folks tend to have is they can live more cheaply and somebody who can live more cheaply can more easily finance a business. Um, often their bigger challenge is their, their capital injection, their down payment, so to speak, into the purchase. Um, I, and that's where I go, friends, family, investors, um, certainly there is capital mm -hmm. out there. Um, but I do, I typically do at least one, if not multiple transactions a year with an entrepreneur that's in their 20s. And to me, I would consider that fairly, fairly low to be getting funded with debt, fairly young age to be getting funded yeah. with debt in the marketplace. Um, credible, ex credible education, credible experience, um, can live fairly cheaply. They understand the business. If they can come up with that capital, they can, um, they're very viable buyers. <laughs> the other thing, uh, Joel, real quick, yeah. I think is you, you, uh, the, the multi-generational component of that. Yes. You see a lot of, uh, of uh, older business owner passing on to the next generation. That next generation uh, is going to run that business differently, probably more in tune with, with marketing and running businesses today. So um, uh, absolutely. I'm seeing a number of, of, uh, folks in the next generation uh, taking over business and expanding that business, uh, maybe in a similar area or uh, vertical integration. But so I, I definitely, I think that there's an opportunity also for that next generation to look at expanding uh, old, an old family business in a new way. Mm -hmm. Maybe build on that a little bit. There've been some questions about generational uh, transactions. Um, can you talk a little bit, Brian, maybe about, financial plans, family plans, any special uh, considerations when you're doing that, when you're handing off a business to a different generation, maybe? Are there any special concerns? We'll start with Brian, but anybody can jump into there. Um, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just uh, touch on it briefly. Um, the, the federal estate tax is 40% uh, for amounts over 11.7 million. Uh, as a couple, it's 23.4, but I'm going to guess almost everyone on this call is in the state of Minnesota. And so federal doesn't really become much of an issue because uh, in, in, for 2021, uh, that estate tax exemption is 3 million. Uh, by the way, Minnesota state tax is about 16% max rate right now. So a, a, so a, a married couple can, can shelter about $6 million in the state of Minnesota from estate taxes. So those federal numbers are, you know, really get rid of a lot of, uh, um, you know, mere mortals and, but $6 million in the state of Minnesota, that's, you know, that's a lot of folks, especially if they're looking at selling a business. So certainly um, uh, focusing on how do we efficiently pass wealth or you know, business to the next generation is important. The real thing, tough thing, Joel, is it's not a one size fits all thing. It's actually normally very customized. And so uh, not necessarily uh, you know, a one size fits all solution. I guess I maybe, maybe Lisa can touch on that a little more. Um, yeah, uh, happy to, um, uh, I think, uh, and one of the questions, uh, that I saw come up was, you know, a sale of a, of a service business, for example, um, and, and valuing that, um, 
And just thinking about that, uh, you know, it's very difficult for um, somebody who runs their business based on the value of services they provide, say, for me as an attorney, to try and sell it to someone else. Um, because uh, the reputation, the relationships, you know, the work I bring in comes from me. And so the value relates to me and my being there. Um, and that goes for a lot of service businesses. It can be difficult to transition them. Um, so uh, that's one of the uh, things you have to think about when you're planning this transition, getting people involved uh, early, um, you know, in a family business. Do you want other family members to uh, to be involved early on to build up that expertise, to build up those relationships, to be in the right position to take on uh, running the business? Um, uh, from an estate planning perspective, um, you know, I know there's strategies you can employ, although I will say that's not my area um, in, in how to shelter your business from uh, Minnesota taxes. But um, usually the more time you have, the better. Uh, so if you can do this while your family members are involved in the business over a period of years and the number of years and take advantage of the dips in the value of the business to transfer when the value is lower, uh, you're really going to come out ahead. And so it is something you want to have in your mind for the long term. Um, thank you, Lisa. I want to quickly change uh, topics to, uh, um, I'm going to combine a few questions here all in one, but I wonder, talk about maybe just getting help in this process and professional services companies, either if you're a buyer or a seller. Um, Maybe we can start with you, Don, or Young. Um, how do you find the right broker to work with to sell your company? And then maybe for the rest of the panel to be thinking about, too, um, what other help is out there for even buyers like sure. uh, they can get for this, too? So if you wanted to start just finding yeah, that right broker. I would start by talking to your, to your colleagues who recently bought or sold a company. Say, who did you work with and what was your experience like? Uh, the other thing is most of them have a, an attorney and a CPA already and ask them for a referral uh, to who may, who, who may have worked with in the past. Um, but I, I, would, I would point out to me the importance of using a broker uh, because the broker does, does a couple of things uh, that nobody else really can do. One of them is to serve as that kind of a quarterback to bring in a specialized talent. So if you look at this panel here, for example, every company has an attorney that turned doesn't have the specialized knowledge of M&A that someone like Lisa had. And every business owner probably has a broker to handle his investments but not a specialized broker like like a like a Brian who can handle the, the wealth management of a of a business sale and an exit. So we acted as kind of a quarterback. We bring in the Lisa and the Brian and the John to make a specialized team. Um, that's that's one thing. The other thing I would encourage anybody who's looking for a broker is just to sit down and meet with them, just talk with them. A lot of it has to do with just personal vibe. If you feel comfortable with that person, if you like them, if you have confidence in them, that goes a long way. Or you might leave them and say, well, you know, I don't really feel that comfortable with them and I'll go on and look at somebody else. But the other point I would make is ask them about their database. This is to me a really important point, that Young and I can provide a national database uh, of buyers, sellers, and investors. So we can plug a seller or a buyer to a targeted campaign into this large database, a national database of potential buyers. So, for example, the client that we have right now is a local company that's selling their business, 
And the buyer that we are working with now, we have a signed LOI, is out from west, out in the western state. And how would you find them unless you have a, a broker who has that kind of a, a database to sift through and, and to find a potential buyer? So that's a, a plug for, for Young and I, I would say. Okay. And well said, Don, if I may add a little bit there too, I, you know, sometimes I kind of think like from my healthcare operation background, I, I say this in healthcare term, we have something called ISP, right? It's individualized service plan. And that sort of strategizes where to go from there. And I think I say that in the sense what I, you know, see from marketplace working with the owners, business owners or buyers, they're every single one of them are in a different point of their journey and not not all one strategy fits all. So there, and then I go back to then who's my primary doctor versus specialists, right? So primary doctor could be actually Brian, it could be John, it could be Lisa, it could be us or some, or, and so then really kind of the dynamic changes a little bit depends on who we work with and what point of journey they're in. Um, so I would say um, good collaborators, um, kind of like a care coordination, uh, not I'm saying not that I'm saying that everybody's patients, right? But I'm using that analogy to kind of make a sense for you know every business is a little bit different based on the stage and uh, size, uh, target, and why they are thinking about buying or selling, and then what's the strategy from there. And I think it's important to have that strategy and potentially, you know, you the business owner as an owner, it's a hard to run day-to-day businesses. And how do you coordinate all of that yourself, really? So have a have an advisor that you work with to be able to help coordinate and triage that. And um, our process from brokerage standpoint is, is it's, so we look at a whole spectrum of the process. If there is an ISP individualized service plan for an example, which is a sales strategy, where do we go from there as marketing to a finding buyers and the uh, buyer management to the due diligence to the closing and then what's after that so it's really a whole life cycle is important process to think through but you know it's hard to do it on on uh, as one person i if you know it's um it, you know even if i um look at say um as a as a business owner do i look at look to somebody else to get some help collaboratively so that you know things can work out uh, in a seamless process and anticipate what might come up as a challenge or trouble in the in in the um, in advance based on you know what the circumstances and those are anticipatory items are also very important. Uh, so going through a disciplined process with the right advisors, I think it's very important. Great comment. Um, I'm going to switch topics again. I'm going to combine a bunch of questions all into one. Um, so uh, it seems like, and John, maybe I'll start with you on this too. Um, you've mentioned too that maybe the old rules don't apply now with what we've been through, the recession, COVID and such to um, 2020 and 2021 financials will have a lot of noise on them. And there's a lot of questions about valuation um, from both a selling and buying perspective, I'll start with you, John. Can a lender help understanding with this understanding of evaluation or the structuring of an offer? Do you have some points or thoughts to begin our talk about how do you value companies or what's in, in this environment that we're in? Sure, I'll, I'll give you my my point of view. Um, I have an opinion on almost everything. Sometimes it's right. <laughs> So my my point of view would be that the lender, yes, absolutely has to have a an opinion on that topic. Um, the key thing I like buyers to know is it's a lender's opinion. 
In other words, it's not an entrepreneur's opinion. It's not a specific buyer's opinion. It's a lender's opinion. And a lender's opinion is contextual to the funding of debt. Is it bank debt? Is it SBA debt? Um, those have particular points of view. So I often end up in a situation where I tell someone, hey, this might be a good business opportunity, but it's not a good lending opportunity. Um, but within my spectrum of funding, I absolutely have opinions related to value um, and what might be supportable value and what might make sense for the buyer. Um, for me personally, there's no worse feeling than helping somebody into a bad situation. So I seek to avoid that. Um, so understanding the dynamics, understanding the person and their personal needs, understanding just in terms of sheer probability, do we have a lot of things that say this is a high probability good outcome? Um, the other way I tend to phrase it is we, we absolutely want the seller to get a great harvest. We want the buyer to get a fertile field for the next harvest. So um, I can help folks do that through my own lens. Um, but again, I go, uh, I am not a certified business appraiser. Young is. I am not a broker. Um, Don and Young are. So my expertise is around value related to funding via a particular vehicle. Um, again, that being said, that's what that's the vehicle my clients are likely to use. So it's the most relevant point of view. And my opinion is also linked to the funding source. And that gives the opinion some value. <laughs> when the opinion comes with money, more important than opinions that don't come with money. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of a key part of it. Um, just to touch on 2020 and 2021, um, there are things happening in the market. Um, Lisa mentioned PPP loans. If you if a business had a PPP loan that was forgiven in 2020, that those dollars are likely to show up in revenue as other income. Um, when debt is forgiven, it shows up as income. Um, as a buyer and as a lender, you need to know how to treat that. What do you think about that? How should we treat it? Um, so there is a lot of noise in 2020 financials. There will be some in 2021 financials. Things like um, PPP loans, EIDL loans, grants. There was a lot of stimulus in the marketplace depending on the type of business that you have. Um, um, so I, my advice to folks is expect due diligence to be a little more thorough now, a little bit more thoughtful um, but that being said, it's not rocket science. These are things we know and understand. The key is how did they impact in this particular context? Right. Anybody yeah. else? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. If I may, um, the, um, as far as valuation wise, I think um, with what's happening in 2020, um, sort of, I think I see the change in the tone of how to treat this. So in the beginning, really assumption was this was going to last for a very short amount of time. So do a, you know, add back potentially, um, whether it is a, a adjustment, financial adjustment, you know, positively or negatively. If it's one-time income like PPP or whatever, usually we do make an adjustment for those uh, anyhow. But um, to make an adjustment for what had happened short amount of time, but now this has this has this has been going on for a while since the uh, pandemic started in March. So um, really, kind of looking at uh, from to John's point, it's it's really important to understand that you know the lender has to approve. So what we see it as normalized operation as a valuation might not necessarily might not necessarily be a financeable. 
So it's important for buyers and sellers to understand to, and it goes back to the right sort of expectations if they want to sell and the business has declined. Um, I recently had a meeting with a potential buyer who was in the space of wanting to buy, uh, do a management buyout. So um, internal transaction, it would have been. Um, the problem was that, um, you know, it would be, uh, it would be very difficult to finance through the bank, although business was very attractive and strong. So in the, you know, in a year ago, potentially the valuation would have been somewhere probably seven to $900,000. Um, haven't looked at all the books in detail, but with the pandemic, it really changed the shape of the business completely. So this is one of the, I, I think, most impacted business that we kind of looked at. I would say really what makes sense for the buyer and the seller. Can I at this point. Chirp, chirp yes. in real quick. And as, as uh, uh, you know, as humans, we tend to look and make emotional decisions on what's right on our face. But um, I will tell you this, that so uh, as the calendar flipped, uh, our economists were anticipating economic growth in the United States to be right around 6%. Less mm-hmm. than a week and a half ago, they upgraded that to over 7% for the coming year. And so mm-hmm. I do think yeah. that as, um, at, I mean, yeah, this, and much of the of the malaise of the, of 2021 is going to be in the first quarter, and so um, I do think that you're going to start to see, um, you know, as the uh, as uh, the the vaccines are rolled out and economic uh, and, and consumer attitudes improve, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. economic activity will also be significantly better uh, when we get to the end of the year. Right, I think that's a I think that's a good projection too, Brian, and then. Um, to that point, really, based on what makes sense, if they're, you know, talking about the buying and selling perspective is really maybe right now start the um, conversation and have a transaction in place that's going to have some sort of feature rewards for the seller uh, stronger. Uh, and then so the buyer can come into a transaction with a seller um, if they're not necessarily financeable and then refinance the, the deal working through the bank when business turns around too. So there are ways to structure those working with the, um, Lisa, maybe you can add to that too. Um, if there is a, you know, the structure that makes sense for the buyer and seller to going in and then put something in place, um, with the risks involved in mind. And, um, and again, it goes back to how much the two parties want to go into transaction and kind of looking at the risks and reward and things like that. So um, anything you want to add, Lisa, from your perspective? Have you seen those circumstances coming up where, geez, I kind of want to have this done and I really, I know this is in my best interest, want to get done, but how do we get this done? Well, certainly um, there've been a number of transactions where sellers are really motivated during this last year. Uh, just wanting a transaction. Um, I think where we do have like the noise in the financials, as John was saying, and um, the stop and starts of the last year, we're seeing a lot of earnouts, and those can be a great way to bridge the gap in valuation. Um, they come with a lot of issues. You've mm-hmm. got to come up with the target. Is it top line? Is it something that takes in profitability into account? Uh, is it short term months to a year? Is it multiple years? If it's multiple years, is, are there multiple payments? What happens if uh, you make the second one? You don't. You miss the first one, but make the second. Do you catch up? What happens if vice versa? Uh, how's the business going to be run? What kind of uh, are there any limitations on uh, what the buyer can do? Uh, will the company have the resources to meet these targets? You know, adequate sales personnel, adequate capital for equipment, things like that. So, 
um, earnouts are a great way to bridge that valuation gap. There's a lot of issues to document. We're coming to a close, but I want to ask each of you one quick question to kind of bring in everything we talked about, if we can quickly. Um, you know, whether it's in the beginning phase, you know, you're pre preparing for the sale or if you're in the middle of the sale or even talking about after it and closing and handling proceeds from the sale, whatever it is. So I'd like to ask each of you, based on your perspective, um, we'll start with you, Don, but what's one thing you would recommend and what's one thing you would avoid if you're just giving or just to kind of encapsulate your thinking just from your perspective too. And I'll ask each of uh, each of you that same question. As a seller or as a buyer? Or, or either, either, either way, whatever comes to your mind, even. Um, I know you represent work with sellers. But well, I, no, I'll do both. We, we work with a lot of buyers too. In fact, my last transaction with John was a buyer. Okay. We bought a chemical manufacturing company here in town. I, I would say, first of all, be patient. Uh, do your work very, very carefully. Uh, as an aside point, I do a lot of expert witness testifying in, in financial litigation. And in the vast majority of those cases, it's because the legal work was done poorly four years ago, five years ago. Now it comes back to haunt them. And they did not do the documents properly. They did not do the due diligence properly. They raced through the transaction. And they left behind little landmines all along the way. And now they explode five years later. So be patient and, and do your work really carefully. Hire a good lawyer, a good fund manager, a good banker, a good broker, obviously. And, and do the work very, very carefully. Because you're talking about a great deal of money, a great deal of liability and risk that can come back to haunt you at a future point. So be careful and be patient. Young, do you want to answer that next? Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, recommendations. You know, I think the um, whether business is doing well now, um, not a lot of worries, or business is struggling, I think always think ahead. I think think ahead and uh, we love to um, we love having conversations early on two to three years prior to it to talk about what are some of the business benchmarks and make you know metrics that are important uh, to um, you know in the and as as business grows or stabilizes or whichever ways um, so have early conversation with your advisors and um, uh, what to avoid, I would say, um, I would say for me, always is stay humble uh, in the process because we have, you know, through the negotiation phase, um, things can be challenging, uh, but that's the time I see that as negotiating time is really a time to build a relationship too. Um, and, and it's a small world and <laughs> it's, it gets smaller and smaller sometimes, um, so, you know, the people that you interact with and advisors, brokers, um, we all kind of end up in the same world. <laughs> so I think that through no matter what, and that's more of a dynamic, I think, um, and that could be a seller's too. I could be a buyer approaching sellers directly and say, I want to buy your business. Um, whether, or a seller could be approaching the other party and say, I want to sell my business to you. Um, in, in all shape or form, I think just kind of staying humble throughout the process is important. Um, so it's not necessarily a void, but um, I think there's been a time where, um, it, you know, sometimes things are a little bit more aggressive and it has to be really beneficial for the sellers and buyers and through all kind of through the process too. So um, having a good synergy along the process to me, I think is important. Thank you, John. Quickly, do you have 
one, one thing to recommend, one thing to avoid, what comes okay. to your mind? Um, so my advice would be get to know a lender if you're interested in being in the market. Get to know a lender, get pre-qualified, be active, don't be shy, mm-hmm. sign NDAs, get packages. The more you look, the better you get at looking. Um, my thing to avoid is avoid non or bad marital communication. If you're a married person, <laughs> having your spouse on board and other family members on board, but most importantly, your spouse, the single biggest thing that drives late anxiety in my transactions is differing expectations between spouses when one spouse is actively involved in the purchase and the other one isn't. Um, and those things bu- tend to bubble up a little late in the game. So open, often, and early marital communication is my, uh, yeah. avoid not doing that. <laughs> Very good point. Great advice always. <laughs> I know we're running a little long, but Lisa, do you have quickly um, one thing to recommend, one thing to avoid? Well, I'd say have realistic expectations about the time frame. Your LOI might have uh, 45 to 90 days, um, but in my experience, deals typically go beyond that time frame stated in the LOI. Um, uh, the thing to avoid, I'd say, is uh, of, um, don't put off making decisions about your business and how to run it, thinking that your buyer is going to want to do stuff if you need to invest in capital expenditures, if you need to bring on new employees, if you need to terminate employees, do all that stuff. Uh, don't don't think the next person's going to do it. I just also want to add, I think there were a couple questions we didn't answer mm-hmm. um, on um, like EBITDA multipliers versus valuing uh, cash equipment and assets. And I'm not sure I addressed the sellers uh, or the question about valuing the service business. And so I'd be happy for those um, participants to reach out to me with the contact info that got posted um, and, and uh, talk to them or, or respond to questions. That's great. Appreciate that. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts as we wrap up here? One thing to recommend, what, what do you want to avoid? Well, I guess the first thing I would say would be trust. You are seeking professionals that you trust. And how do you do that? Well, A, if you already are working with Young, uh, you would say, hey, Young, do you have somebody in this area, whether it be a banker or a wealth manager that you trust? Or if you're a business owner and you talk to other business owners, ask them, who do you know that you trust, that you recommend, that you have experience? So my number one recommendation was seek out professionals that you trust. And then what would I avoid? Um, I would... I, I would avoid working, you know, in my area, focusing on, on price and performance immediately uh, for me is not necessarily something I would avoid. And I would say, what are you looking at for advice? Do you want to take advice? Are you looking for a professional who will guide you through a whole, this whole process? Um, the price and the performance will absolutely come and be attractive if you're working with a professional that knows what they're doing and fair to all concerned. Thank you. Um, I know we're running a bit long, but I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for attending today. Thank you, panelists. We could talk all day on this subject. Thank and you, a thousand Thanks things. Um, appreciate Thanks, it. Yeah. Right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Pleasure working with you. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.